There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And uh, welcome to Rule the Roost podcast. I am one of the hosts. I don't want to say the host because I get in trouble with the other host when I say I'm the host um, to Trunk. And the other host is, do you want to do your part? Well, they know who I am. I'm, I don't, Raj Baines, I don't like to say my own name. I never do that usually. You don't, I know, I know. I just sort of put you on the spot there, mate. I quite like you. But yeah, this is this is Raj Baines. Bainesy, as I might start calling you. I'm not going to start calling you Bainesy. I don't really like it's a bit, that. I don't, it's a bit public school, that, isn't it, for us? It is. It's a bit public school dash David Brent. And I, I, I don't think I'd want to be the David Brent of the podcast, to be honest. But that would make you the Gareth Keenan of the podcast. And... <laughs> That, I don't know if that's a, if that's a worthwhile sacrifice or not. Well, probably not. Me, me and McCrinzy Crook are, are well known for our regional accent, so I think it'd uh, <laughs> I think it'd fit quite nicely, to be honest. Yeah. Anyway, um, Tottenham Hotspur football. Club. Let's let's dive straight in. We'll save all our other our other guff talk for the end, um, so people can turn off if they want to. But it's. Uh, Bit a bit of doom and gloom, mate. We've got a bit of reflection to do before the before the international break. Um let's just let's start with a kind of broad scale view of your takeaways from the Stoke match. Um what what did you think of it overall? Um I think it was the culmination of several mistakes being made in tandem, um selection wise and uh, and otherwise. I think it was just a it was one of those games you could almost see coming, to be honest. Um, yeah. With what had come previously, and we, we've said quite often that this is going to be a very stop-start season, and um, it was just indicative of that. Really, I, I think the 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 surprise that we lost and the manner in which we lost wasn't wasn't great because um, it wasn't really a performance. It wasn't one where you'd say we were too unlucky. We just didn't perform really. It was it was. Really bad to watch for for Cop. It was a, it was like you said at the end of last week's when we were talking about predictions and all that kind of lark. Um, and I was saying, you know, do you reckon we'll win this one? And uh, I think you, you'd actually said back to me, I, I I don't reckon we'll win any game at the moment. As in, not that you know you're pessimistic that we're going to lose every single game, but it's like we kind of are in that state of flux at the moment whereby you don't go into any match at the moment thinking like, yeah, Spurs will win this one, Spurs will win that one. As we've seen, we've you know we've beaten Villa away, we've performed out of our skin away at the Emirates and 
arguably could have taken all three points from that, but then come back and succumb to Brom at home and Stoke at home. You know, we're, we're very much that kind of yo-yo side at the moment. Um, and the, the performance, as you say, against Stoke, it, it was just, it was dross, wasn't it, really? There was there was, there was was very, very little to take away from that in terms of positives. Yeah, I mean, it was a game where you could draw more conclusions from what wasn't there rather than what was. Because the, the, the negatives from what was on the field were things that we were already aware of. The fact that Fazio and, and Kabul aren't particularly a, a partnership that would really ever take off. Um, I can see the thing... As in, when you say particularly, you mean just never, not at all? Well, I could see there was there was quite a bit of negativity when they were obviously named, as there always is when a Tottenham team gets named on Twitter. But I could see the thinking behind it with it being Stoke that... They're still, I think, the tallest side in world football or something like that. I think, <laughs> no, it's not a joke. I think that there's like been a research done Seriously. into it, and I think their average height of their squad is like six foot two, six foot three, um, which is a good few inches taller than most other sides. Um, even though Mark Hughes is, is trying to make them play a bit better on the floor, um, you can see the thinking behind putting our probably our two biggest men back there. Um, I'm not sure whether or not Vertonghen had a, an injury or not that, that he wasn't played, but putting those two together kind of highlights both of their weaknesses and and amplifies them. If you're to put a couple with Vertonghen or Fazio with with Vertonghen or even Kirikesh when he's on form, then the opposites kind of not attract, but they work better. They complement each other much more in a partnership. You've got a, a progressive player who plays a ball on the floor a little bit more, does less of the, perhaps the, the physical work, but does more of the uh, preventative work on the floor and does the interceptions and whatnot and has a more t- has a tendency to step up. Um, but when you've got two defenders of a similar ilk next to each other, um, it just kind of makes them an easy target. Um, so that's something that I, I, I hope Pochettino has identified and he'll he'll cease to, to try and make work because it's just one of those that I don't think will particularly take off, um, whereas there are some things that he's trying which, which could. I mean, the fact that Fazio and Kabul Sato, I mean, again, we're only working on conjecture and... There hasn't actually been anything in the press, surprisingly, this week about Vertonghen's omission, at least nothing I've seen that's big. Um, but in like, your gut feeling about that, would you say it's indicative of issues behind the scenes, as it were, between Vertonghen and the management team, perhaps, that he is being left out for, for games at home? Because it did seem a bit out of the left field that Vertonghen was warming the bench while Kabul and, and Fazia started the match. I think if there was a problem with Vertonghen, he wouldn't have been made captain a few days beforehand. Um, he led the team out in the Europa League game a few days before. And if, if if you don't trust him, I know you don't think he's he's worth playing in perhaps your best team and your biggest games, and you don't give him the arm. And I think I've heard whispers that perhaps there was a knock there that, uh, you know, uh, for precautionary sake, they didn't want him to play. Um, so... It's one of those where you're really taking a bit of a stab in the dark. Had he been fully fit, had he been available, I think it would have been ideal to start him there. I think he's he's still our best defender compared to the rest of them. Um, oh, he 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 clearly is, isn't he? I mean, like, when he when he when he's up for it, he's uh, he's definitely he's definitely. Out. And I think I think one of the problems with him, and I know we 
kind of have laughed about people talking about his body language and things like that in the past. But there is still that, to a degree, there is still, a, I would say, quite a clear line as to the fact that he 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 can let his head drop quite a lot of the time and he hasn't looked particularly happy for the past season and a half. And, you know, if, if you to look at it completely objectively, you can understand, you know, when he sees the likes of Bale, Modric being sold, um, and he is being courted by teams like Barcelona, why he might be pretty pissed off about that. Um, of course. And yeah, as a Spurs fan, though, it, it still riles me because we are still the club paying him, what, 65, 70 grand a week to do a job. Um, and I don't think he is always completely focused on doing that. But when he is up for it, he, uh, he, he, you know, does it very well and uh from all accounts he is supposed to be a, a very very nice very nice bloke as well and does make time for the fans and things so you know i don't think he we'll particularly wants to be at the club anymore um just being completely blunt about it um yeah if yeah you were, it's understandable if then. you were to to think about what he came to the club for and at the time he came to the club he would have been sold that that project under Villas Boas that we were going to be this younger progressive side that we're trying to crack into the top four and trying to become a much bigger team. And he would be a, a, a focal point of that in defence. He then had his nose put out of joint by having to play elsewhere because we didn't have the cover in other positions and he was forced to play other places. And he specifically came to Tottenham with playing at centre-back in mind because there were bids from Arsenal who had said to him that they wanted to play him in central midfield um, as a defensive midfielder and he didn't want to do that. He wanted to to play in what was his strongest position and that is something that we told him we would do and then it took us a few weeks to play him elsewhere and since that time it's just been one mini crisis and one turbulent period after another and if, you, if you're thinking about him as a professional who has no real feelings towards Tottenham, he's just an employee, um, then he's obviously going to want to go elsewhere if there's if there's interest for him. Um, and the way in which I look at footballers now, who they literally are just employees. There are very few who I have any sort of yeah. actual affinity for, especially playing for my own club. I've never been anyone who got another player's name put on the back of my shirt or anything like that. It's just, it's it's understandable that perhaps he he's looking for his next his next job and next opportunity now, and he's probably somebody who, if he if if he had that challenge of playing in the Champions League, is likely to to raise his game in that sort of environment. I think it, it's it's tough because it, it you know it is it is something that you know you you can look at as pragmatically like that and I do agree with you um but at the same time I can understand fans frustrations and I can understand why it does wind people up because you know there's we all ultimately love Spurs you know it's it's the club that we support and you do still have that I, I even have it you know as much as uh, as I do try um as much as my Twitter persona or whatever I say on here might not always <laughs> regale that I'm a fairly rational person. I do always try and have a, a rational approach to this kind of stuff. And I can kind of, as you've put there, you know, Vertonghen, he hasn't come for our academy. We haven't helped build him at all or anything. We've sold him, as you say, a project. And we've we failed on our end of the bargain in that we've sold the best players that probably drew him to come here. 
we have played him out of position, which is kind of one that I feel that he can get over a bit. Um, and I feel he needs to maybe man up for want of a better expression about. Um, but some of the other things, you know, you can understand it if it's true that we turned down a bid from Barcelona and you can understand why he'd be, you know, his nose would be out of joint about that. Um, and there is also, of course, the argument that, you know, he he gets paid a salary, so he should do this. But, you know, money's not everything. I've I've had jobs before where I've been paid a salary and I know I've done a shit job. Um, and whatever, if that's a poor reflection on me, then it's a poor reflection on me. But I think a lot of people are liars if they say they haven't been in that same position themselves. So, you know, um, I've, I, I do think personally it's it's probably the time to just cash in on Vertonghen. We're not going to get as much money as we probably could have done a couple of years ago, but I still think we could easily get upwards of 15 million for him. Um, and I just think, yeah, I'm not saying he's causing problems in the dressing room or anything like that, because again, that's all unsubstantiated nonsense. But really, when you're trying to kind of go forwards, build a team for the future, which I think is should be Tottenham's prerogative now, I think we need to stop thinking about the here and now and challenging now for the top four. We need to look at this now again, that we are in that position as we were at the start of, say, Martin Yole's reign, where we need to be building. We need to be thinking three, four years down the line, we can again be challenging for the top four, hopefully, um, as opposed to what can we do to push for the top four this year or next year? And players like Vertonghen are just kind of, they're probably ahead of where we are in, our project, as it were, and thus, you know, do you want unhappy people around the club? Um, there is, of course, the argument to be made as well that you have a player like Hugo Lloris, who, for his position, I would say is far more talented than Jan Vertonghen is. Um, he's, to me, Hugo Lloris is, is up there with Manuel Neuer as one of the best, if not the best keeper in the world. I, I, I said earlier on in the week, I don't think Manuel Neuer is head and shoulders the best goalkeeper in the world like people make out that he is. I think there's a whole collection of exceptional goalkeepers in world football at the moment. Um, I think Hugo Lloris is rightly alongside that as one of the best in the world. Um, and we're very lucky to have him. I wouldn't begrudge it for a second if he left Tottenham. But uh, still, every single game... He seems to give it his all. He he seems to have that kind of desire to just want to, you know, shower himself in glory, even if the team isn't, um, which is essentially what makes a player a winner. It's what we had with Gareth Bale previously, you know. It was a player that was playing in a whatever, surrounded by players that weren't of his ability, but he still gave his all in every single game because it mattered to him that he put in a good performance. And I think Jan Vertonghen's probably biggest failing and what will perhaps stop him um, and has perhaps put some of the bigger clubs off of him is that he's kind of shown when the chips are down, he doesn't really have that mentality. He's kind of, he, he looks like a bit of a quitter, but you know, whatever you, you can see it from both sides, but um, Harry, let's, let's go on to Harry Kane. If we're going to talk about players that have come through there, through the youth system, um, we started with Harry Kane, which was, Probably not that you know that much of a surprise. Um, the, there's a strong case to say that the lad did deserve it. I'm I'm still of the opinion um, that he's he's best left to kind of making his impact off the bench. Or as we said previously, um, 
coming in place in the kind of the band behind the striker, so not replacing Soldado or Adebayor, but kind of occupying one of the positions behind them. So, you know, whatever, Lamella or Ericsson probably um, is one that I tweeted out the other day that I, I, again, got shit for, but there you go. Um, But he, uh, he... You know, again, I'm not tearing into Lad. I think he's very good. I'm very happy to have Harry Kane on board, but he he was pretty much ineffective up front on his own, wouldn't you say? Against Stoke, completely. I think he's far less effective um, up top alone, isolated than he is in the band behind. Um, I think his his best form has actually come when he's playing as a as a member of that three behind a lone striker. Um, it's only against poorer sides that he's really thrived as a as a lone forward. It's it's a hard position to play, especially in the struggling side. It's it's similar to Soldado at the start of last season when there's obviously a disjointment behind him because there's players trying to understand a, a system and they're not particularly um they're not doing the jobs as as best as they could creatively because they've they've not got the full understanding of their role as yet. But the thing with with Kane is <laughs> the thing that kind of sticks out from that game is had he scored the header earlier on, it would have been a completely different story. It was a really hard chance. It wasn't a, a you know, a terrible miss by any means. Um, and he did really well to actually get as good a header on it. It did, even though it was probably going back across the face of goal and wide. But I, as I wrote in, in, a, in a piece I wrote this week, um, I think I'd, if he's going to play... And if he's going to become a, a member of the first team, I'd like to see him drop behind. And then the conversation, as you as you alluded to, becomes who does he replace there? And you can't take Chadley out the side at the moment, who's doing absolutely fantastically. I mean, we make jokes about him scoring every week, um, but it's not a joke anymore. He is actually scoring every week. He's doing really well. Um, he's, I think he's still the highest scoring midfielder in the league. And... I always refer back to that that piece that Michael Cox wrote about him being similar to to Pedro for Barcelona, um, in in the way in which he's used within the side, and I couldn't agree more with it. I mean, it's something that everyone should should really have a look up for and read on. I think it's the ESPN website he wrote that for. Um, it's I think it's part of the the, the North London derby coverage. Um, after that, after he scored in that game. But um, it's it's a choice between Ericsson and and Lamella who he who he replaced in there if he is to play, and um, that, that's a huge call because Ericsson was arguably one of two players of the season for us last year alongside Larice, and Lamella is somebody who we've, we've invested a lot of, a lot of money in, and we're going to have to return that investment in time now, and if if we're to drop him at this stage, it would be. Not only a huge knock to his confidence, but it would be sort of a sign that we we didn't believe he's going to progress and become the player we thought he's going to do. I'll be honest, mate. I think um, as as much has been made of the fact that he's you know not looking that kind of deadly in front of goal, and sometimes he can be seen dwelling on the ball for for a bit of time. You know that he he, he hasn't quite mastered the the pace of English football um, and that he's kind of receiving the ball and taking a bit of time with it. I still, I, th- I think we look like a better team with Eric Lamella in the sides, to be honest. And I'm not sure at the moment, and you've heard me wax lyrical about Christian Eriksen. I'm not sure at the moment I can say the same about Eriksen. So if I were to pick between the two, 
I would uh, I definitely start Kane a- ahead of Eriksson rather than Lamella. I just I think Lamella is a player that is due to a lack of goals um, being probably vastly underrated by a, by a lot of Tottenham fans and probably a lot of just you know football people and football watching people in general. Um, I just think Lamella brings a bit more shape and a bit more kind of dynamism to to our team in the final third when he's playing um because as much as he he can dwell on the ball and he can sometimes try whatever his step overs and this and that um as we've seen with the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo in the past and with even Gareth Bale when they kind of grow out of those habits a bit and they understand okay you know whatever you know some of these players like Ryan Shawcross they're they're not the most elegant they're not the most you know gifted players but they know how to fucking get stuck in they know how to just close men down get the ball and hoof it upfield and I think the likes of Eric Lamella probably hasn't you know learned to cope with that kind of style yet but as soon as he hits that from the glimmers that we've seen from his passing from his moving and stuff I think he will work very very well in this league and within this system um whereas at the moment uh and I think you you've you wrote about this actually earlier in your in your article for uh what is it, umaxit.com, your new your new uh little joint venture with bearded genius, isn't it, mate? But uh in your I uh, liked your in your article you were saying about there where you were saying how Christian Eriksen it almost feels like there's no real hope for him in this current system unless him and Pochettino can work together and try and carve out some sort of a niche for him, that it's as much a case of Ericsson um, pushing himself to try something else um, as it is Pochettino also realising that Ericsson isn't best suited to what he's getting him to do. Yeah, um, what I meant by that was that it's... The, the other situation, I always compare it to Gaston Ramirez at Southampton. The other situation that it ties quite nicely with is um, Juan Mata at um, Chelsea, given that he's not the defensive um, type of player that Mourinho likes to have, where he'll not do the dual role as, as well as perhaps Oscar or Willian might, because they're a little bit more uh, rough and ready. Whereas Juan Mata is entirely about attack. He's entirely about the subtleties of his game. He's doing everything in his power to to score and to set other people up. Um, so my uncomfort- the, the, the point that I was trying to make was that the way in which Villas-Boas worked with Bale to create a different sort of player is the same way that we can work with Pochettino because we, we don't have the resource that Chelsea do to get rid of a player of that quality and then replace him with somebody else or to, you know, to, to just buy somebody else to fit in that position or, or, because what Chelsea did was they got rid of Matter and they got in Matic and they they made the side a lot more structured. What Pochettino needs to do with Ericsson, I'm explaining quite badly, is that he needs to just spend time working with him on the field to try and get the best out of him within that system so that perhaps he doesn't do as much defensive work as anybody else because that isn't in his game, but he then has the licence to attack a little bit more and give us that edge in the final third if he finds that balance then we have a fantastic system and we have a fantastic player within that system and it's not necessarily that those things have to be mutually exclusive it's that between the player and the manager they need to find a way to make that work and I find it 
completely ridiculous notion that it's just something you kind of you try a few times and you 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 scrap that idea. I think it's something that they have to work at. And like I said, with with that that Rodgers first season at Liverpool, it's something he did quite effectively with with a player like Raheem Sterling. Um, he just he spent a season drilling into him what what he wanted him to come become and the type of player he wanted him to be. And through that relationship. And through having done it on the field, through trial and error to a certain extent, he he eventually got it and the penny dropped. And I think that's something we're going to have to do with, with Ericsson. I mean, do you think there can be... Because uh, a lot of comparisons have been drawn at the moment between Ericsson and Sigurdsson. Um, and, I mean, I know there's always that kind of... There's that yearning for people to see former players go on to other clubs and and do really well. Um, not not to see them do really well, but to kind of fawn after them when they are playing really well. Ah, oh, why didn't we give them more time? You know, we've seen it. I even I I said to Windy the other day. I even felt that myself watching the game against Stoke, and it was a very uncomfortable part of me. But there was there was still a part of me that was thinking fuck, we could actually legitimately do with Livermore and Huddlestone here. You know, I think they'd actually improve this team at the moment. Um, And don't get me wrong, I I know the decision was right to sell them at the time, but it's almost like we're kind of, in a way, back down at a stage, back down at a level whereby we could legitimately house players like Livermore and Huddlestone. But that's that's beside the point. Um, The point I am trying to make is that we we had a player like Sigurdsson who has shown that you know he showed for Tottenham he had immense ability and he's showing now that he has immense ability, albeit in flashes. Um, but do, do do you think that you know with say someone like Ericsson, we we probably owe him more than a player like Sigurdsson, for example, in that we should probably such as the ability that Ericsson possesses because I, I think undeniably in, in my opinion anyway he's just on another planet to a player like Sigurdsson I think Sigurdsson is, is very very good but I think Ericsson has genuinely has the potential to be a kind of like Barcelona Real Madrid level footballer if he plays his cards right um, so w- would you say that we probably you know should go out of our way to house a player like Ericsson more so than someone like um, not go out of our way, but if if it's something we can do within a within a you know a, a working relationship, that's that's perfectly fine. I think it's the Sigurdsson talk just buys into a you know a, a revisionism that football fans are very fond of um, falling into. Um, he is doing really well at Swansea, and it is a case where he's a, a slightly bigger fish in a, in a very much smaller pond, and that does allow him to be a bit of a, a bigger cheese around there and he has more of an opportunity. He's playing in his favoured position rather than wider that he was at Tottenham. And he was always going to be a player that was going to... He was going to... He was going to get better and he was going to perform much more consistently when he was allowed to be that sort of focal point, whereas at Tottenham he, he was never going to get that. I agree with you that Ericsson has the potential to be a much better player than he is, because he's got so many more aspects to his game than Sigurdsson does. Sigurdsson's assists and goal scoring are very good, but the other aspects of his game 
aren't perhaps as intelligent as they could be. And I don't necessarily think, even though he had a, he's probably got a bit of a higher work ethic than Ericsson does. I don't think he's going, he's a type of player that would necessarily uh, fit into the system better than Ericsson does to any certain extent. Um, I do think that we it's something that we should work on. I don't think we should write off Christian Eriksen after a, a few bad performances because he showed that he is able to do it in that Arsenal game and he was really, really good in that Arsenal game. He, he dropped deeper and he did it for an entire 90 minutes. And I think because the, the players understood what that fixture meant and, and what it kind of represented for not only the fans but the manager in his very first derby at the club, was something that they they raised themselves to do, and he needs to be able to do that week in week out. Yeah, uh, I'd agree. He he definitely does need to to buck his ideas up a bit. Does does young Christian? I think you know as much as you can say that the system isn't working for him and this and that. There there is a a, a certain level of application that is probably lacking from his general performances at the moment as you've as you've touched on there. Um couple of couple of other things I wanted to to comment on were um Danny Rose and Carl Norton. I I thought our two wing backs were were pretty pretty decent. I think Danny Rose in particular again had a very good performance against Stoke. And I think despite his red card, I think Carl Nor- Carl Norton had a had a decent performance. He's obviously been in line for a for a lot of abuse this week, um, I don't know if you'd seen the 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 club tweeted him out a happy birthday, which it then deleted because of the amount of abuse it received. Um, and we can talk about like the fans and Adebayor's comments probably a bit later. We'll save that for the top end of this of the show. Um, but I don't I think don't the, um... I was, it's, it's encouraging to know that Carl Walker's coming back. I but, think Carl Norton's yeah, birthday is on was... Monday. I don't think he's. His birthday this week. I think they must have tweeted out an error because um, I'm fairly sure it's not his birthday yet. Because um, I was looking at his his Wikipedia page the other day, I believe, and um, that that said that it was on on Monday. Because um, somebody had mentioned to me that it, this had gone on because I didn't actually see the tweet myself. It must have been deleted fairly promptly. But um, I'm fairly sure it's not not actually his birthday when they tweeted it out. So I'm not sure if it was to do with abuse or not. Um, Magic, magic from Spurs official. Oh yeah, Um, maybe he's got a, maybe he's got one of those uh, Oberfemi Martin style passports where his birth is not when it should be. Um, (laughs) But uh, with with Rose and with Norton, it's something we've we've said before that they they seem to have got a little bit more direction um, from Pochettino that they wouldn't have got under Sherwood. to go and attack and to to balance the aspects of the game a bit more. And they seem to have taken to it much quicker than the centre-backs have, which is quite interesting because the, the full-backs at Southampton were pivotal to the way in which they played. And if Pochettino's already placing that inside hours, then it's um, it's quite encouraging. I think the challenge he made was, was understandable, really. It's one of those that you kind of, you know what's going to happen, you know why you're doing it. And one one for the team, wasn't it? A bit, it? yeah. yeah. It's, it's very cynical. It was a um, professional foul, and I think he'd done it with knowing that he was going to be sent off, but it was just one of those where they were chasing the game, and rather than go 3-1 down, 
slightly less of a blow to our attacking momentum would have been him to be sent off rather than imagine if Stoke were to have scored a, a third that would have that would have been terrible um it came, it came very close to happening quite a few times yeah so it? it was um i think it was damage limitations for me really I, I don't really blame him for that i think it was one where in the heat at the moment you kind of you weigh it up as quickly as you can and he he made the right decision as far as i'm concerned Carl Walker uh, coming back into the side is a, is a huge boost not only for him but it means that hopefully Dyer can move back and start playing in the centre much more he's actually stayed back from under 21's duty to do some extra training with Pochettino some position what an absolute disgrace letting his country down mate how could he do that what a disgusting human being well, he's actually um, I know you're obviously taking a the piss there but he's um He's uh, yeah. <laughs> he's actually come out and explained himself really well because um, sometimes when players yeah. do this, it's just because they you know don't want to go play for the twenty ones or something like that. But um, he's he's essentially said that because he's obviously struggling at the moment doing two different roles and two roles he's not particularly fear with, rather than him going to the England and the twenty ones and being played at either centre back or right back and not particularly knowing in a competitive environment what he's doing to the best of his ability to help his game in the long run at both club and country level. He's going to take one international breakout, work on his game and hopefully improve. And then when he goes back to being picked for club and country, he'll be a better player for it. And you know, I, I can't see the negative aspect of that if he's openly admitting to what he's doing and the reasons behind why he's doing it are actually the truth. Then it's something that I, I'm quite open to, really. If more players are honest about having to work on aspects of their game, we'd we'd probably have a much better national team, to be honest. No, definitely. I think we 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 touched on that before that there is there's a lot of potential there for he's he's obviously very very rough um, at the moment, but there's there's a hell of a lot of potential there of Eric Dyer for him to be a very good very good player. Of course, um, I mean I, I watched a, a couple of games of the the Portuguese league live while I was in Madeira um, when I went to go see CD Nacional. Um, and the, the the standard there is is not great. It, it ranges from the very best clubs who could quite easily set into the top half of the Premier League to the lower end of the spectrum where probably Nacional are and and the other team in um, in Madeira. Uh, I can't remember what they call now, um, but they're both towards middle to lower table and they're a bit more Championship League One standard. Um, although they play a much more attractive attractive brand of football the quality within what they're trying to do isn't there so he's he's only going to have been really having to defend for three or four games a season when he's playing in the big games in Portugal against uh, you know Benfica and Porto um, and when he's training against his, his sporting teammates um, but for the rest of the time if he's going to be playing against poorer sides it's not going to be helping him as much so it's I think we've it's a rough diamond if you were and, and if he's coached in the right manner he could be a, a fantastic centre-back we've seen it from the way in which he started the season he's obviously got something about him so I'm pleased with that purchase I think that's that's one we should be pleased about and in the long run he, he'd be likely to display somebody in that back line mm. 
Well, um, we've gone over a few of the players and uh, so on and so forth from Stoke, but obviously it was uh, it was a fixture that brought a lot of tension to the surface. Um, it's been simmering all season, and it's it's obviously fit to fit to burst um, at any moment. Um, talk of whatever takeovers of protests against the uh, the board. Um, about about fans' booze being drowned out by loud music, so on and so forth. Um, so we have invited onto the show um, Mr. Tom Colomossi, who is from the Evening Standard as one of their football correspondents, and he does primarily deal with uh, Spurs as well. So we'll, we'll get his take on the events and see if he knows much of what's going on behind the scenes at the moment. <laughs> So, welcome to Rule the Roost podcast, Tom. Thanks, thanks so much for joining us, mate. No, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. Thank you. No, all good. Um, so, you, you work, you work pretty. You, you're not actually like Tottenham's correspondent per se, but you, you kind of are, aren't you, with the Evening Standard? I am. I think yes. I slightly different from maybe other football correspondents in that I do cricket for some of the year. So, especially in the summer, I'll be following Test cricket then, and then the odd tour. So. And maybe not as full-time as other people would be. But I do go to, I'd say, 70%, 80%, even 85% of the matches. So I like to think I've got a decent idea of what's going on. Tottenham in disguise, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that, yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you what do you make of the, the current particular... I mean, if we talk about, say, on the pitch at the moment, um, what are you making of Spurs this season so far? It's all a little bit worrying, I think, Jeff. I think... The problem they have is that they've brought in this manager who wants to play a certain style. He doesn't necessarily have the players to fit that style. But where I agree that he's in a difficult position, but what worries me slightly is that he just seems to want to play that style all the time. This this pressing style where you've got fullbacks going forward, people attacking in six, seven, eight at a time, even when they're winning games. And what worries me a bit about Pochettino is he doesn't seem to be particularly flexible, which I think any manager at the highest level you need to be. You can have your basic idea of playing, but then you need to adapt that. That said, I do think he's been dealt a difficult hand because it's pretty apparent that none of the players who arrived this summer were his first choices and were led to believe the players he really wanted were Schneiderlin and Musaccio and then Rodriguez eventually, although he's not fit. None of those arrived. They kind of had players who weren't quite as good as them, and, and I think Pochettino's starting to realise that. So while I think he's been dealt a tough hand, I also worry about his apparent lack of flexibility in the games that I've seen so far. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, there's there's quite a lot of discontent at the moment, as I'm sure you're aware, um, from the yeah. stands. Um, do you think a lot of so you know? Um, I mean, we've 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 spoken um, at length, myself and Raj, about about kind of Pochettino and how there probably does need to be a certain degree of flexibility there um, to his approach. We, we were just talking earlier about, say, Christian Eriksen, for example, how yeah he's kind of been forced into what is seemingly quite a rigid system, whereas he kind of flourishes flourishes even when given a bit of freedom. Um, but. Yeah. With like the, the stuff about Pochettino aside, do you, do you feel that these uh, these these issues that we seem to see keep recurring? So you know there was kind of whispers around kind of Villas Boas that he wasn't being fully backed. Um, 
with kind of targets that he wanted. I mean, you know, a lot of the talk was around, say, like Hulk, um, Moutinho, two two examples of players that you know, he he'd worked with in the past that he very much wanted to bring to Tottenham um, to try and you know reinvigorate the team and take them forwards in a way in which he wanted to. Um, I mean, it, how how much of this do you think is kind of the director of football not? you know, agreeing with this or, you know, how much of it is the fact that, you know, someone like Hulk is going to be demanding 250, 300 grand a week or whatever, you know, Man City type wages um, to come to Tottenham when when that's not there? Because surely this is something that would have been spoken about before, say, like AVB took the job or someone like Pochettino took the job. Because this is what never makes sense to me in that, you know, a, a lot is always said about AVB having wanted these players, and surely he would have said that before he took the job. I don't know. So, do you, yeah. do you know of any kind of you know subterfuge that might be being being played on that side, or any talk of that that you know promises well, are made that aren't kept? I think that it's fair to say that Pochettino was a bit miffed when Schneiderlin didn't arrive, because I think. He went to Spurs pretty confident that Schneiderlin would go with him. Schneiderlin wanted to go, and I think he was the kind of player that Spurs probably thought they, they could secure. That said, I wouldn't blame Tottenham entirely for the fact that he didn't arrive, because, as we all remember in the summer, it got to a point with Southampton where it looked like they were falling apart. I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? But it certainly looked like that at the time. And I guess the owners down there, Felt they had to make a stand and keep at least one of the key men with so many of the others having gone. And the way you do that is you demand such a price of him that buying clubs won't pay it. And maybe you have some covert deal with the player where you say, look, just give us another season and then you can go. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened with Schneiderlin, by the way. But that doesn't make life any easier for Pochettino when the job's not really as he would be in the brochure. I think if you look at the positions where he wanted to strengthen, it was in attack with Rodriguez. I completely don't blame Daniel Levy for not signing him because he's an injured player who's had a serious injury and I don't think any promises were made about him. It remains to be seen how well he recovers. But you had him in attack number one target, Schneiderlein in midfield and Musaccio at the back. Now those are three players that Pochettino rates highly in the case of Schneider and Rodriguez, they know his methods, they trust him, and Musaccio is clearly a player that he'd identified. When you don't get any of those targets, it starts to become a bit trickier for you. And I think the difference between Villas-Boas and Pochettino is that you made the point very well there, Jack, about Hulk. They were never going to sign him. Villas-Boas should have been aware of that when he came to Spurs, when he looked at the way that the financial side of the club is run. That deal was never going to happen. I even heard that in August of 2013, so the start of Villas-Boas' last season, Zenit wanted a £10 million loan fee for Hulk. Well, that's not something that Spurs are ever going to do, and I don't blame them for that. Pochettino's targets were slightly different. They were more achievable, and I can understand why he would be miffed that none of them arrived. I think it's something that we'll come on to, I'm sure, later in the pod, but again, it's the flaw in the structure at Spurs with this director of football. I don't per se disagree with that, but I think the way that those are appointed does create problems, and the hands-on approach that Daniel Levy takes to transfers does also create problems. I mean, from your understanding of the club, because I, I still think there is this... There's a, one of the biggest sort of causes of fan discontent, I think, at the moment, is this seeming lack of clarity 
um, as to how the club actually operates because you know there's there's a lot of talk about some people will say for example that Pochettino will just give a kind of or the manager at the time I should say will give a vague idea to the director of football well I'd quite like this player I'd quite like that player um, and then the director of football has been known to say okay well he wants a striker he wants a defender so I'm going to go and get this striker and this defender that I like and essentially just ignore what the manager's saying and other people are saying that it's actually you know Baldini acts as this puppet for Levy that he just will go out and tell him well I want to buy this player because he's going to sell me more shirts in this country or so on and so forth and you know there's all these kind of far-flung conspiracy theories and so on and so forth but I mean from your understanding how is it that the process actually works at Tottenham when it comes to buying players and identifying targets I think Nothing to the transfers happens there without him having a huge influence in it. Possibly more than any other figure in a club of similar size in the world, maybe. It's absolutely his thing. And in terms of the deals, he's had some great successes. The problem is that it's all about the deal for Daniel Levy. He wants to make Spurs profitable, and that's something that he's done. Everything that he tries to do is in order to make Spurs profitable. And so... Look at Lewis Holtby, for example. They signed him. He would have been signed on a free transfer. They ended up paying, what, £1.5 million to sign him early. He came. He didn't make much of an impact. He'd leave for Hamburg. From a footballing point of view, what was the point in signing him? But from a business point of view, the way Levy looks at it, if you get £6 million from him, there's a £4.5 million profit. I think that is a good illustration of how transfers are approached and how they work at Spurs. And while they can yield some profit, the downside you have is that there's not necessarily a playing strategy behind them. It's just deals. And so now I look back at the time we were when Dante Ramos was manager, which was my first season for Prince Burden. If you remember, he was sacked in the two points from eight games and then Redknapp in the January after a League Cup game, they just squeaked through a Burnley. seems to be very much kind of this this level of understanding that a lot of people have at the moment that that, that Daniel Levy for his place as a chairman is probably too hands on um, and he does get get too stuck in I mean from your perspective as a as a member of the press because we've heard that you know Tottenham can be pretty icy that their their relationship with not only the fans is quite poor but also with the press is is notoriously um, quite well not poor per se but they're they're a lot more demanding than a lot of other clubs um would be um is 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 that is there any truth to that at all it's a difficult one man jack i don't know if they're more demanding i just think that they suffer from 
this condition that I, I think afflicts most Premier League clubs of overstating the importance of football. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that. If you try to get some information out of the White House, for example, or Downing Street, that might be information that's going to affect national security. So you can understand why people might steer you in the wrong direction or not tell you the whole truth. When you're just trying to get information about whether Kyle Walker's got a groin injury, well, <laughs> really, it's not, you know, it's not that difficult if you let the information out. And I think sometimes Spurs aren't the only Premier League club who suffer from this. They get so bogged down and so worried about what information is going to come out and how it's going to look when it does that they fail to see the wider picture. And I think Spurs are as guilty of that as anybody. I mean, there have been times, I could tell you countless stories, but um, there was one in the 2012-13 season, it would have been Villas versus first year, they played a cup game at Leeds. And we all had wind that Defoe had got an injury in the build-up to the game. And this was bad news, because Adibayo was at the African Nations Cup and didn't have a fit forward. And we were told, absolutely no, he didn't have an injury so we didn't go with it. And we get to Ellen Road, and a few of us were approached by people from Spurs saying, oh, yeah, actually, you know, amazingly enough, you called, and he wasn't injured, but then two days later he did get injured. Now, I have no reason to doubt what they say, but if you're cynical, you might draw your own conclusions. And I think it's just those small things where they could just be a lot more open, and it would save everybody else a great deal of hassle. And I think that comes from the top. It's a very closed environment, quite a... Paranoid is a strong word, but certainly a very worried environment about how things are going to be perceived. And sometimes you just want to go in there and say, look, guys, it's only football. Just relax a little bit. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that because I'm, I'm sure you've heard all the, the kind of fracas at the moment with uh, the music being played over the booze at the, at the end of the game. Yeah. Um, on Sunday, um, I mean, there was no official comment from the club at all. Um and you know, you've got to question the point of of having a, a social media team. Obviously, there's there's one there to to you know publicise what's what's going on at the club, various different things. But at the same time, you know, the, as someone that works in social media, there's there, there has to be a, a level of understanding the sentiment of your audience um, and opening up a, a channel for communication. And at the moment, it, it feels like, you know, the, the social media presence is all just kind of, it's one way, you know, they, they yeah. push everything out and don't really listen to what their, what their audience are saying. And, you know, the, the second after that occurred, um, Twitter was rife with people saying, hey, did you hear how Spurs drowned out the booze? I mean, we all noticed it. Yeah, ex- exactly. But it took them two days to have someone who you know works for the club in in Daniel Wynn, who yes. uh, does the who does the commentary for Spurs TV, to come out and actually tweet and say, "Oh, hey, you know, the guy that actually runs the PA system was at a wedding. I was the one in control of it. I just didn't yeah. know how to work it properly, so I turned it up too loud. Sorry about and that." that. Sunday night precisely you know and it's it's like you say it's that level with the club where you kind of you have to question obviously you know they can't respond to every single thing that the fans are saying and so on and so forth but there are certain moments and certain things like that like you know when there is such discontent at the moment amongst the supporter base when you do see something like that that is 
obviously, you know, it's, it's close to trending, as it were, within a kind of the Tottenham community. Why they don't react to that more more quickly? Why it needs to be treated with such reverence? Why every single communication from the club e- either needs to come in this very like you know, 18th century style official address from the chairman, you know. I think they're not alone in that. And again, I think it's a, a British sporting trait, really, because I cover cricket, as I said, as well. And the way that the ECB, the England and Wales Cricket Board, handled the Kevin Peterson issue is a classic example of what you're talking about, really. It's this kind of paranoia, oh, well, we don't know what to say, so we're better off saying nothing. Whereas give you a couple of examples of how other cultures are so much better. I, I don't know how much you follow cricket, but last summer the Australian team were in a complete mess. They had their players punching people in bars. The coaches were being sacked. It's all sorts was going on. And what they did was they put everybody up out in the open in front of the media to apologise. You couldn't move for quotes and interviews. And necessarily, when that happens, we're all going to ring our sports desk and tell us everyone's spoken, and they're going to be happy with that. Whereas when you have a culture where people say nothing, your your desk isn't going to be happy with that and you're going to have to start digging around. Similarly, this week, I found out that Jürgen Klinsmann had done a press conference with all the, the daily newspapers who operate on different deadlines from me. And my boss said, oh, I wonder if you'll be able to get something yourself. So I phoned the press officer of the American team and he said, well, I can't promise anything but come down to training. And sure enough, I got five minutes with Klinsmann. Now, that... I know it's a different culture, but that would just never happen at Tottenham or any other Premier League club. And I think it's not fair to single out Spurs, but as they're the club we're talking about now, there are so many ways you illustrate. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Some of them there in your discussion. Yeah, um, I mean, one, one of the other things that seems to happen as well as a, as a byproduct of this, though, is that when you have this kind of air of silence, whenever it gets broken, things seem so much bigger than they than they probably yeah. should be. So, say for example, Adebayor's comments the other day um, yeah. when he spoke about the crowd at White Hart Lane, which of of course has been kind of turned um, into Adebayor has a go at Tottenham fans. But when you actually read what he was talking about and you read the the full kind of well, I was there when he was speaking about it. Yeah, well, if you be my guest, mate, you you uh, let us know exactly kind of what the sentiment was and what it was that he was. Yes, I think what he was trying to say was not be critical of fans directly. He actually said that they shouldn't be blamed for it. He said the players were responsible. But I think his 
point was that with so many new and young players in the side, however you go about making the atmosphere easier for them to make them feel more comfortable, it should be something you try to achieve. I think that was very much the gist of what he was saying. And I think the problem is that there's a lot of anger towards Adebayor at the moment, rightly or wrongly. And had it been somebody who can do no wrong in the supporters' eyes, of Christine Eriksen, for example, it would probably have been received with a lot more calmness. That's just my personal take on it. Yeah, I mean, he's he's always been, it's, it's right what you say, he's always been a character that polarises opinion, even from day one when we signed him, you know, given that he's had kind of ties to Arsenal. Um, there's always been question marks about his attitude. Um, and th- there is this kind of perceived idea that, for a start, that he's lazy, and that's something that Raj and myself have often refuted in that, I, you know, there's a lot of things I would say about Adebayor, I, I think sometimes he, he is a player, you know, his head can drop and so on and so oh, forth, yeah. but I, I I still think he's, uh, I, th- I think he's a, he puts in a tireless amount of effort every time he's on the pitch, um, and I, I I definitely agree with you, I, it's just, it's it's strange, there seems to be this almost like this un, unwritten rule um, about kind of anyone at a football club actually saying anything negatively about the fans because we saw this with AVB before yeah. um, when he he criticised kind of the feeling at White Hart Lane but what staggers me about it is it's it's nothing that Tottenham fans aren't themselves saying you know you, you, you log into Twitter and you just see huge huge amounts of the fan base saying Christ the atmosphere at White Hart Lane is terrible at the moment and it's been for a while, I think, hasn't it? I think certainly supporters have been saying it for quite some time. I remember in the League Cup game against Brighton, in the first half, Spurs didn't play great, but you had the impression they'd probably score and get through the tie, which they, of course, did. But the atmosphere was so tightly wound that you sensed that had Brighton scored, the whole place would have just becomes so deflated and negative mm. and perhaps that's something that transmits itself to the players. Now I don't think I don't see you how you cure that easily apart from better results and better performances and it's hard for me to compare it with other stadia particularly because it's such a small sample size of me going home and away with Spurs so much. But certainly it's it's very different from you know, even in the the good days of Redknapp's management, I guess, which is self-explanatory. But even, as I said, in the real dog days of Ramos, that there was a more positive, encouraging atmosphere then. It felt like that the crowd knew, well, they knew you were no good, but they really wanted to encourage you. Whereas I think there's a bit of a difference now, and I don't know, maybe you guys could put your finger on that a bit better than me being Spurs fans. I think it... To me, it feels mostly like um, so in in the kind of the probably the the nineties, the last kind of lull. Um, as a Spurs fan, it, there was almost that acceptance of you know it was, it was before the Premier League had really kicked off, and it was before yeah. the the really big money had you know kind of come in. So there was still more an air of anything can happen. Yeah, you, know, you had Man United that were head and shoulders above everyone else, and then later in the nineties, probably Arsenal as well, who were yeah. coming into it. But at, at the same time, you know, even even Liverpool weren't as as big as they once were, and it it no. seemed like the league was a bit more open. And even though Spurs were quite crap, there was always that kind of feeling of hope. I guess that we were always kind of 
with the potential to at least do something that we had enough of a base to to build something going forwards and when you kind of come into the to the era that we're in now it's it's almost like we're we're being sold this vision that we are a team that's up there with the likes of Man City with the likes of Chelsea and, and as ridiculous as that sounds you know and being charged accordingly we are being charged yes, and it, it, it shouldn't all be about money but you know I think the club are, are marketed and the fans are charged and the way in which the club presents itself is as a title challenging Champions League team and we simply aren't that you know we we were that for a while for a you know whatever a nanosecond in the in the lifetime of the Premier League when we had kind of Bale, Modric, Van der Vaart, Ledley King yeah. Um, and the, there was that platform there for us to really push forwards, but you know the the wheels have kind of come off of that per se. But it, it it almost feels like that at the moment the club are kind of like, oh no no no, it's it's all fine. It doesn't you know we wish Gareth well, we wish Luca well, and it's it's all good. But you know we're still this kind of this awakening giant now, and we're still going for the top honors. And I I, I think it's just this kind of this sentiment amongst the fans that when the times were really, really good, the club were clamouring for this new supporter base for kind of what you might want to call the fair weather fans, you know, people that have maybe been drawn to the club from overseas or even just, you know, domestically who suddenly saw Tottenham as a team more worthy of supporting, of getting behind and in turn alienated a lot of kind of the older fans. So started to introduce maybe, you know, things like StubHub took away the drum, you know, know, heavily marketed the club um, and forgot about kind of what actually built the club in the first place. And I think now there's that, there's almost that feeling from the, from the old school as it were of, well, you know, you kind of turned your back on us when things were going well. And now the wheels have come off of that a bit. You, you, you kind of come crawling back. Um, and I, I, I don't know, it just, it feels like in, in a lot of different ways, there's a, there's a lot of mess at the moment, like it, the lack of kind of understanding as to what's going on with the stadium per se as well, I think is a, is another massive point. Of- I think that, that could solve a lot. And I think, when you look at Daniel Levy's time as Tottenham chairman, certainly the second half of it, it's all been about the stadium. That's the holy grail of Enoch. They use a horrible cliche, but that's what it is. And were they to get the planning for everything to be solved, all the hurdles to be cleared, I think they'd feel a lot more comfortable. I think the supporters would feel a lot more comfortable because they could at least see a tangible result of what Enoch have been trying to achieve. But every time they try to take one step forward with it, they seem to take another two back, whether that be because of the difficulties of getting the compulsory purchase order or at least overcoming the appeal against it, whether that be because of the possibility of going to Milton Keynes. If we look further back into the past, there was the issue of the Olympic Stadium. And I think that... If I were a Tottenham fan, I think that would be something that would irritate me, that the stadium's been going on and on. I think, again, the circle that Daniel Levy and Enoch have found it impossible to square is that they don't want to spend lots and lots of money on a team that is going to get the Champions League in case they don't get it in it and then they won't have 
money to put to from the stadium you can understand that from a certain point of view but then the other side of that is that in order to have the kind of funds you need to build a stadium and continue prospering you need to have the excellent players you need to spend the money and I think they've tried to strike the balance between the two sometimes they've got it right Redknapp's career that was the time when they got it right most of the time I think they've struggled to square that circle and at the moment they just seem to be going backwards on the pitch, as you say. And um, it's what's important, I think, is that in the January window, Pochettino is backed to some tune. If we look back to the first season of Redknapp, when he went in there, I think it was um, October 2008, they were really struggling at the wrong end of the table, and he was backed in that January window. Defoe arrived, Keane came back. Palacios came in, I think Kudicini and Chimbonda came in as well. That was about £50 million spent. I think Pochettino deserves similar backing in this January window, or at least next summer. If you've given a guy a five-year contract, at least put some trust in him by letting him sign the players he wants, or at least having a guy in the director of football position, this is what I wanted to come back to, who shares his idea of football, who knows the kind of players he likes to work with, at least trust the guy a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, I think it, it, it just feels at times that when Enoch have had this chance to really kind of reaffirm what it is that they want, um, to really kind of, for want of a better expression, you know, put their mouth where their trousers are kind of thing, mm. that they still fall short. You know, when there was that, you know, there was the, the season when we were absolutely flying high, when we had, you know, Gareth Bale as an absolute phenomenon. We still had Luka Modric. We still had Ledley King. But the team mm. was just absolutely crying out for that striker. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of talk about Sergio Aguero and that we were just on the very verge of buying him. And, you know, there's conflicting stories, but it, it seems to be that it's, you know, it got to that kind of levy case of, we offer 25 mil, they want 28 mil. We offer 26 mil, they say they still want 28 mil. And so we don't go for it and we end up with Louis Saha. And there's just, there's, yeah. there's, there's little things like that where you think, you know, if just at that point, if Levy had just thought, you know, let's just stop the kind of brinkmanship. Let's just kind of actually put the money down and let's just, let's just do this. Let's just actually go for it then we can be a real force. And I still think there are those doubts around whether or not kind of he really, really does want to just sometimes take that little, that little extra risk that is required in order to really compete at the top. I think yeah. it's a fair point. And I think the January transfer window that you cite is a case in point, really. But it goes back to what I was saying about the difficulty of squaring this circle and I don't mm. claim to be able to read the mind of Daniel Lee no, of course. I wouldn't be in this job but I think <laughs> that he probably thought well I could spend X amount on a, a top centre forward but still doesn't absolutely guarantee us getting into the Champions League what happens if I've got that guy and I break the because you get that guy in you have to give him top money you have to break your wage structure everybody else wants a lot more. So really, it's not just a £30 million transfer deal. It's a heck of yeah. a lot more that you're committing. Um, what if we then don't get in the Champions League? Where does it leave us with the stadium? Mm, I'll have a look at it. We are seven, eight points clear. We should just about be able to get through 
and then we'll be in the clover. So please don't think I'm some kind of apologist for Daniel Levy. I'm no, not. of course, I'm just of course. maybe trying to put the case for what he might have been thinking in that transfer window. But as it happens, I do agree with you. I think that was the one time where, apart from the, the season when they looked like they were going down, that was the one time to really say, OK, let's take a bit of a punt here, and he didn't do it. And perhaps they're, they're still paying the price for it now, because who knows if they'd have managed to get into the Champions League that year, maybe Modric would have hung on for another year. You don't know, he, he probably wouldn't, but it's a possibility. Um, if they'd have gone from strength to strength, who knows, maybe even Bale might have stayed another year. So it's, it's all difficult things to balance out, isn't it? But I think if that was a time when he really needed to go for it, that was it. But I think now they almost have to forget about that. That was something that could have happened, it didn't, and maybe they're still suffering from it. But I think it's time, as I was just saying, you've given a new manager a five-year contract back him properly with the players he wants. And I think that's really important that they do that in the January transfer window. I, I'm not necessarily sure they will. And paradoxically, if results pick up a little bit, that reduces the chances of that happening because the top brass will think, well, you know, probably we can get through to the end of the season again. I know Harry Redknapp wasn't massively popular with Tottenham fans, especially towards the end of his time. But all I'd say is I think that he and Daniel Levy were good for each other. Levy was good for Redknapp in that he wasn't going to let him sign 30, a host of 30-something players on big contracts who weren't going to give any resale value to the club and were maybe only going to give one year. I mean, look at the Christopher Samba signing at QPR. Levy would never have sanctioned that, and quite rightly so. But similarly, Redknapp had that force of personality to say to Levy, look, I know that X player isn't particularly, he's, he's in his late 20s. I know that you might not get a huge resale value off him, but we need to win now, we need to do well now, and you have to pay some attention to the present. So I think as odd a couple as they were, they were actually very good for each other. And I wonder if both of them now think that and perhaps could have tried to make it work a little bit harder. I bet they both regret that a little bit. Hmm. I mean, from your perspective, I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's something that's been noted um in in the kind of media circles and things but another cause of concern i think at the moment is the the marked kind of changing candle from pochettino as well i mean it, it you you know you can obviously attribute a lot of this to the pressure that he's actually under but it, there almost seems to be an air of resignation about him already which i i i put out a kind of a, a joking kind of false tweet after the stoke game saying you know Guys, have you heard Pochettino's? He's he's walked by mutual consent, and a lot mm. of people weren't even surprised by that at all. They they'd yeah. actually fallen for it, and there does seem to be an alarming air of of that at the moment. It, it kind of almost feels like, however many months into the job, you wouldn't actually be surprised to see the the ticker on Sky Sports News to see that Pochettino's upped and left already. Um, oh, don't do that to me. I want a quiet week. <laughs> no, <laughs> but. But do you, I mean, do you do you get that feeling from your side at all that it, it it does feel quite fraught at the moment, much more so than you know, or is that just the the paranoia of a Tottenham fan? No, I don't think it's a paranoia of a Tottenham fan. I, I see where you're coming from. The other side of it, I think, is that he himself would like to be backed in January too, and I don't think he particularly rates this squad. I really don't. All you need to look at is the body language 
that he displays during games, especially when they're not doing well. If you just study him quite closely, you can see certain gestures of resignation. And I also think that he thinks, I want some of my own men here. I want some of my own players in. And you can do that in various ways. And I think if he's starting to express a few reservations about the squad, he knows he's got the five-year contract behind him. Perhaps more likely he thinks that he'll be back in January than if he were to continually say, no, this is an excellent squad, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't think, I don't see him walking because he doesn't seem that sort of a bloke, actually. He, he seems as the sort of guy who would want to see the job through. I think he's one of those, pedagogue the right word or or you know, real belief in his way of playing. And I think that's both a strength and a weakness. I think that He'll work his absolute socks off to try to make it happen. From what you hear, he's there at 7 a.m. He doesn't leave till 7 p.m. It's the double sessions and everything. But I think because he's so wedded to this philosophy, the one doubt you might have about him is whether he's adaptable, whether he can change. And I think perhaps instead of trying to impose it so completely on this squad, maybe he could have looked a bit more at what he had and thought, well, okay, ultimately... I'd like to play the sort of game I played at Southampton, but there's no point trying to make them do that yet because I don't have the players available to me. I'll try to work towards it gradually. And if I was going to level any criticism at him, it might be that because they just they don't have you know they don't have the security in the side, do they? Every time the opposition get the ball, you think they might score. So I think there's definitely a case for playing a little bit more conservatively while he tries to bed people into the way he wants to play. Ultimately, to just think about being a bit more tight at the back and a bit more secure and then try and work towards a more expansive style of football. Yeah, I mean, you, you almost feel like he could learn a few lessons from Villas-Boas' reign at, at Tottenham because at the moment, you know, like you say, there's there's almost that kind of stubbornness, that single-mindedness that they yeah. they both possessed, which ultimately was, you know, Villas-Boas' undoing. Um And you, you, you'd hate to see that happen to, well, once again with... Uh, with Pochettino, um, I mean, what, what you're saying there is interesting though, about him not being too happy with with the team. As much as it's 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 great to see a, a young player like Mason step up, and he is doing a he's doing a very very good job. And it's yeah, everyone loves to see players come through the academy, um, and the lad is is performing well. There's there's also a double edge to that. In the it's always a worry when someone from the academy who is you know relatively if not completely unexperienced is occupying the place of a 17 million pound yeah. brazilian that's gone to the world cup you know yes yeah. and that that's just indicative of the fact that there's obviously something not right there um with whatever with paulinho as an individual or with the club and their buying policy overall um well i think it's the former there, sorry, the latter, because the problem you will always have is that everybody's opinions on football are different. Like you and I could talk about football in general, and I'm sure we differ on a lot of points, and it's no different football managers and directors of football. And the difficulty Spurs had is that they spent all that money in the window after Bale went, OK, some of those players were Baldini signings, and I'm sure Levy as always, was very influential in them all. But Paulinho specifically was a player that Andre Villas-Boas wanted. And he came in, Villas-Boas is gone, 
suddenly he's a guy who's trying to adapt to a new country, a new style of football, and his mentor, if you like, is no longer there. I know for a fact that Tim Sherwood didn't rate him, and you only have to look at Pochettino's team selections this year. If he does rate him, he's got a very funny way of showing it. Um, and I think in terms of Ryan Mason, it's, it's a double-edged thing, really, and I think there's two ways that Pochettino can benefit from selecting him. I think the first way is the one that you alluded to in terms of his ability to um, showing that he's... Sorry, I'll start that. It's the way that you alluded to in terms of um, playing an academy product ahead of Paulinho or other players, sends a message to the board that, look, I need a bit more here. But the other way is that he's showing board and the fans that he's going to give academy players a chance and that always buys you a bit of time as a manager and personally I don't think Spurs has got this crop of players that they've come through homegrown, I don't think they're world beaters I don't think they're anything like the Man United lot I'd never go that far but I think he could do worse than give an opportunity to a group of them I don't think because because if we accept that probably Spurs aren't going to be Champions League qualifiers in the next two or three years, well, give a proper chance to Townsend, Kane, Mason, perhaps Carroll, Rose is there, one or two others who could come through, Ben Taleb, one or two others who come through the system, and surround them with players who Pochettino wants, Pochettino's signing. And yeah, you might finish sixth or seventh, but heck, it'd be a little bit more enjoyable to watch, wouldn't it? A group of players who have shown they can do it in the Premier League, who care about the club, surrounded by others that the manager really wants. I think, yeah, it wouldn't be perfect, but surely it might be a little bit better than this kind of disparate mishmash of players and you don't know who's going to be where and you don't know who's going to be coming or going. I think maybe that's something that they can work towards if they scale back their ambitions on the pitch a bit. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that, mate. Um, so just before we uh, before we close this off for, for the evening... Um, I was just wondering if, uh, from your, from <laughs> if I could rather cheekily see if it from your side does any any ITK we can we can shed on the show. Have you have you heard much about in in the way of players that we're looking at? There's I know there's a lot of talk about Moreno um, that Pochettino would like to to bring him in from Espanol <coughs> to play at the back. Do you know if there's anything cemented behind that at all? Well, he came out and spoke didn't he today, hmm. saying that you know, what he thought about Pochettino. So I've been in this game long enough to suggest that that probably means there's been some kind of contact between the two of them, either direct or not. It also says to me that he can't think a lot of the centre-halves he has. Um, I think he'll try to get Rodriguez in in January, depending on, depending on his state of fitness. I think that is something he wants to do. Whether he'll be able to do it, I don't know. It'll be big um, money Southampton had won, isn't it, for Well, that that's one. the problem with it. And this is why I think... The deal that deal could be doomed, really, because Southampton are in a good position in that they don't need to sell because they've sold all those players last summer. And also, he's not an absolute first choice for them. So if they wanted to, they can sell and they can push the price up a bit. Um, so I think that might be a difficult deal for him to do. But I think there's quite a few there that he'd be happy to see go. I think Aaron Lennon's one. I think Kyle Norton's another. Paulinho's another, they can get him out and learn. I think Kirikes is another, Dembele's another, Townsend will be another too. Um, not saying they're all going to go in January, but there's a heck of a lot of players in that squad and this should be a worry really to all fans that Pochettino will be quite happy to accept offers for and when you're in that position with a manager, you 
up against it, really, behind the eight ball, as England cricketers love to say. So, um, with that number of players in your squad who are expendable, I, I could see at least three or four of those going in January if they were prepared to back in with proper replacements. Yeah. All right, and Tom, well, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Um, no problem, Jack. That's absolutely fine. No, and it's it's been great. And, uh, well, hopefully the, uh, the, the, the club can... Uh, Go onwards and upwards from here, but you, you have a nice evening, mate. Thank you very much. You too, mate. Thanks very much. So thanks so much to Tom there for joining us. That was uh, that was quite revealing in places. Um, there were a few connection problems here and there, so sorry if the sound quality dips in and out. I'm going to try my best to to edit that. Um, I, I, I guess I wanted to because we've we've gone over previously a lot of what we spoke about with Tom Raj, but I wanted to get your thoughts more on the. The anti-board sentiment and stuff at the moment. What's going? What's going on at the club? I know it's something we could probably dedicate the entire podcast to, but just your your kind of initial thoughts. I mean, do you think we can feel hard done by by Daniel Levy? Do you think we should be demanding more from him? Um, if not, demanding that he actually packs up and fucks off, as a lot of people seem to want to happen. Um, I don't feel um, that I want them to to pack up, so to speak. Um, I've always looked at the way in which they own the club um, and I've always described it to people as property investors because um, they are an investment company. I've always, the way which I've tried to make sense of it myself is I've compared it to when people buy like a, a rundown house and then they do it up a bit and then they try and sell it on for much more money. Um, which is what I think they're, they're essentially trying to do in the most basic sense with the club, um, whether or not they're trying to do it in a in a shorter span than, than it's what it's worked out to be, I'm not entirely sure. But I've always thought that they were trying to, on a budget, put in as little money as they can so that their initial investment will then be, you know, the, the profit margin will be much greater when they come to sell the club. I think everything they've done in that period has, has you know, been a signal of that they've created this infrastructure with the training centre which is another asset that they can add on to the price of the club uh, the stadium whether or not it's built will be an asset I think I, I'm of the opinion that they're, they're going to try and build that or at least have Tottenham in a bigger capacity stadium because that again enhances the package that they can sell on um, the players that they're buying in and the way in which they want us to compete on the field what do you how do you feel about it? Do you think it's because there's quite a lot of resentment towards Levy as a person, I think, and then Enoch as a company. I I sort of find it hard to differentiate differentiate the two. I think if it's if it's in Levy's interest, it's in the company's interest as well. Um, I'm fairly placid as you can tell towards it. Not that I'm willing to just kind of lay down. It's something I've kind of made peace with, as you well know. I'm I'd rather be owned by an investment company than I would a shady oligarch or a you know a shaker willing to wanting to legitimise his funds but uh, how do you look upon it all? Uh, I, 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 I don't know man. I've, my opinion on this has swayed a lot um, various different kind of things have pushed me back and forth in my opinion um, I think my problem with the whole thing is, as you say, it's sometimes better the devil you know. Um, I don't think by any means... I, I, I definitely don't uh, 
adapt to the whole, oh, don't be so ridiculous, you know, who can be pissed off with Daniel Levy? We've done this under Enik, we've done that. Yeah, you know, we have improved under Enik, but at the same time, you, you cannot take away from the fact that there are a lot of things, they have mismanaged a lot of things. Um, you know, the the issue of, like, StubHub, for example, um, the handling of the Y word, the taking the drum away, you know, these are all PR nightmares. But one of the, 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 the most substantial ones that Tom touched on and often gets forgotten is the, the move to Stratford. You know, I think that, that, that would have happened. You know, the move to Stratford would have happened. And I personally feel that that would have destroyed the club. That would have killed Tottenham as a team. Um, and I think things like that are kind of that, that line in the sand. I mean, I say destroyed Tottenham as a team. They all well may have gone on and become a lot more profitable on the pitch, signed a lot of new players and so on and so forth. But I mean, the romantic, as you say, you know, when we're talking to the City fans, when you look at kind of your old picture of, you know, Archibald and Jennings and whoever else, and you see all these names of yesteryear, um, lifting all the you know the the trophies and things that we've won in the past that's tottenham that's that's what we represent um doing things you know with, with our trademark kind of fashion the tottenham way as it were which is kind of open for mockery nowadays but uh for still there is that romanticism around tottenham to dare us to do and just that kind of that move to stratford would have i think it would have it would have killed a real kind of affection between a lot of fans and the club and it would have paid into this kind of nouveau supporter base um which would have seen the club transformed um and not to mention the fact it would have destroyed tottenham as an area for maybe that's you know, a bold statement to make i'm not too sure on the <laughs> the 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 ins and outs fully of the economy in the tottenham area but i know that the club undoubtedly um probably provides a lot for the area so there's there's a lot of things like that you have to look at and you have to question eric's uh, eric <laughs> enix kind of uh their their moral compass not to go to brendan rogers about it um and i i don't know there's just again it's something else i mentioned with tom is that there's there's been times in the past just in a footballing sense when it is the window that's often picked up but when there was just that season, that glimmer when Tottenham legitimately had a team that could have pushed for the title and we just needed that little push and we were heavily, heavily, heavily linked with Sergio Aguero. Um, And, you know, we offered a sum. They wanted a couple more million than we were willing to offer and it just didn't happen because of Levy's brinkmanship. And there, there are points like that when you think, well what do Enik really, really want? Uh, you know, and you, you kind of can't help but think they are happy just knowing that we are this kind of steady investment. And, you know, there, there is there is something to be said for that because, you know, we are still one of the best of the rest that we are competing against teams that are, you know, financially doped, as you like to say, with Chelsea, with uh, even United nowadays, um, with Man City. Um, and... I don't know. There's, there's a, there's something I, I would liken it to. Um, this is really fucking pretentious, but it stood out for me when I, when I was reading the trial by Franz Kafka. He uses this little, uh, this little metaphor at the end when he's talking about 
the castle. Um, it's essentially it's a, it's a it's a little metaphor for life. It's about a man that's trying to enter a castle, and he goes up to the front of the castle, and there's a knight guarding it. And uh, you know this this knight is like an ogre. He's like ten foot tall. He's huge. He's in a huge suit of armor, and you know the 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 man says, "I want to I want to be the king. I want to sit on the throne." Um, because I hear there's no king in in the centre of the castle at the moment. And the knight says, well, I'm guarding this door, and I can tell you unequivocally, you will never, ever get past me. Um, but should you should you get past me, there are three other knights um, guarding three other doors within this castle, and each one of them is twice as strong as the last. Um, so you can go by the understanding, if you get past me, then... You, you're not going to get past the next one. Um, and so thus the, the rest of the story goes that the man just sits outside the castle, keeps trying to sneak past the knight, never manages to get past him, tries to get past him with brute force, so on and so forth, never manages to get past this 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 knight at all. And he is a young man when he approached it, and he's spent years now, while all, all the rest of his friends are out enjoying, you know, enjoying life, enjoying the summers, all this kind of thing. He's just spent his whole life outside of this castle trying to just get past his first night until he goes back up to the night again as an old man about to die and the knight still says to him no you're not getting past me and i just feel like this this is a metaphor that works for football in that you look at a team like arsenal who are you know they're they're somewhat ahead of us and they're they're what we aspire to be but then you look at their fans and their fans are just as unhappy as we are at the moment because their fans feel that their board aren't really making a real go of it. They're not really doing this. They're not really doing that. But this is a team that has Champions League football year in, year out. It's a team that is taken, although they kind of have the piss taken out of them still, they're a team that is taken a lot more seriously than Spurs are. They're a team that we haven't finished ahead of for however many years. But their fans are still not happy because now that they're in the Champions League year in, year out, the next thing they want is to... Either, you know, they want to win the Premiership. And then when you look at it, so you go on to the next stage after that, you look at a team like Man City for all the money that they spend. They win the Premier League, but then they want to win the Champions League. And then their fans get unhappy because they're not winning the Champions League. And I I just think you can get too wrapped up in the stuff that you don't have and just just neglect that, you know, that we can still enjoy football. You, You don't have to every single time look at it as in like, you know, why haven't Enik delivered as Champions League football? But at the same time, we've still had some, some good times under them. And we, regardless of whoever's running the club, we shouldn't let that destroy what makes us support Tottenham, essentially. Um, as much as they may try and as much as we say, oh, you know, I'm not protesting against Tottenham, the club I love, I'm just protesting against like the business. It's like, well, fair enough, protest against the business. But then at the same time, don't let that pollute everything about the team. Like we, you know, we shouldn't just take results as, oh, we're going to win this or we're going to lose that one or this. You should just try and enjoy the game more. And I think that's probably part of what's going wrong with football at the moment is that everyone just wants to. They lose sight of the fact that competition exists and that you can't win every single game and you are going to have some shit days and you are going to have some good days and that, you know, so, yeah, we lose at home to West Brom, we lose at home to Stoke. Yeah, it's shit. Yeah, you've spent X amount to get to the game, but that's that's what, you, that's what you're paying for. That's the gamble you take. You know, you can't, you can't go into a casino of 100 quid and then 
leave feeling pissed off that you haven't made anything off of the back of that. It's it's all chance, you know. You're not you're not paying for a guaranteed product. You're not paying for a guaranteed win. And I know there's a lot around it that people can feel aggrieved about, but still, I think there is still this high level of entitlement that I don't think really fully requires us to say, you know, get rid of any because you look at many other high level chairmen, they don't act particularly that differently to the way Enik treat us as fans at all. A lot of most Premier League fans are getting charged through the nose. They're getting kind of exploited in various different ways by the chairman. Look at look at Newcastle, for example. Like Mike Ashley's one of the worst going. I mean, I, I don't think we can even say we're on par with that. You look at the likes of Vincent Tan at Cardiff, so on and so forth. And I know, you know, you, you shouldn't have to say, oh, we're not as bad as Vincent Tan, so he's not that bad. But I still think it can be a be a lot worse. And I, 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 I don't know. What's to say what's going to come in after Enic go? You know, I just think we need to maybe just stop clamouring for Champions League and for this and for that and to just like look forward to us winning 5-0 sometimes and us being able to have a laugh at ourselves when we do lose at home to Stoke you know because that's gone on one of my monologues but you know what I'm saying there are there are two things around the subject that often make me feel uncomfortable when um, when people bring it up uh, the first one is that I, I always feel in probably in football in general, football fans are often quick to overlook the fact that football in any sense is extremely cyclical. And it's something I've said to you previously, yeah. um, whether or not we've recorded it or not, I'm not sure. But teams come and go with success and it happens almost like clockwork. And anyone up and down the leagues knows when they have their peaks and they have their troughs. At the moment, Tottenham are one of are on a downward cycle at the moment compared to where we had been previously. And if if you look at like the most extreme case of that in something like Manchester United or Barcelona, they have these periods where they have so much success that, that they can't stop winning trophies. And then they'll have a couple of fallow seasons where their cycle has come to an end. They're having to rebuild the squad or they're having changes within the club, and then they go through another period where they win more trophies. Look at Real Madrid with, with what they've done. It's it, that's, that's an amplified version of what every club goes through. If you look at somebody like West Ham, West Ham have been on a, a cycle where they had players that were good enough to play poor football and they were finishing the lower half of the table. But now as they've had a couple of back-on-back seasons in the Premier League, they've made a bit more money, they're going into a bigger stadium they've afforded a couple of bigger players and a, a better quality of player and now they're reaping the rewards of it a few years down the line. They could have quite easily sacked Big Sam last season and then they would have, again, started at the back of the cycle. So the reason why that buys into my comfort is because you never really hear, especially at Tottenham, you never hear this discontent with anything when we're doing well. Mm. And... I know it's I know it's easy to say, but because football fans are so fickle, you if there was that that presence of people wanting a change of regime, whether the whether we were playing well or whether we were playing badly, that would be much more understandable and, and something you'd want to get on board with much more. But it's it's so much easier to to kick a man while he's down. Well, we're doing poorly. Well, we're in the beginning of a, a poor cycle. If that's the period in which you're choosing to to jump on it, it, it you can forgive someone for looking on it a bit 
a bit like you're being a bit knee-jerk, like, oh, this is a new stick to beat this person mm. with. If you don't continue that rhetoric and you don't continue that that campaign while the team is doing well, then it's not it, it detracts from you somewhat. And that's not me saying I, I disagree with anyone who wants a campaign or anything like that. You know, my political stance, everybody should have a free speech whenever they want to. You know, when people have things taken off them in the ground, that's just not right if all they're wanting to do is peacefully protest and have their you know, opinion part across. You can understand why the club take it off them, of course. It's, it doesn't take a genius to realise that they'd uh, they'd not want that sort of material floating around and being caught on by cameras. But again, they should be allowed to if they'd want to. Um, but like, if you, if you look at something like ticket prices, which up and down the leagues are, are rising, Tottenham are just a, another you know, another vessel in that modern football that is that is part of that. I mean, you have to factor in the fact that we've got London prices. It's, you know, it sounds like a small northerner here saying London prices, but it is no, a it thing. Is a thing. I, yeah. mean, that's, I mean, it, it, it benefits us just as much as it plays against us. There are footballers that could join other clubs in the Premier League over Tottenham, but the fact that they will be based in the capital of the country and we'll be based in almost like a cultural centre and one of the biggest cities in the world is a is a plus point for them. And it is for potential investors as well to have something that they can build upon in the centre of of, you know, the the big capital of of England. That is a major plus for them. And that's why we do quite well with sponsorships and things like that, because we're not a small side and our location is a benefit to us. The other thing I feel uncomfortable with is when people talk about one or two million here and one or two million there, as you just did when when you talked about Aguero, mm. you said, "Oh, if we'd if we'd have pushed on the price a bit more." But if you look at the clubs that do push on the price a bit more, you're left with Portsmouth and you're left with Leeds United, and if we have a budget that we're working to. And if we if we've got thirty million pounds to spend on Sergio Aguero, and then their third party ownership says, actually we'd like forty five for this because we've got so and so to pay off his dad to pay off, you know the the gardener that told him about us to pay off with his third party ownership. That extra money, if we don't budget for that, if we do that with every single transfer we do, we very quickly have, you know, a, a debt building up, and I'd much rather Tottenham to be a stable business than going in and out of administration and whatnot when clubs are when clubs are essentially gambled with financially. I mean Tottenham would never go out of business because football clubs have got so many safety nets around them that it just allows them to, to phoenix out of the the ashes of an old club. You only have to look at Rangers to know that. But I wouldn't want us to go through that. If it if if I had the choice between Tottenham being a stable business and being something I will know will always be there in one way or another, or you know, a circus like Portsmouth or, or Leeds United were when they just tried to try to do too much with too little is essentially what they did. I mean, Leeds, Leeds' case was pretty much similar to ours, but they, they were chasing Champions League football and they spent money they assumed they would get through qualifying for the Champions League and didn't. And then they were they were left short. And if we were to do similar and spend too much, then people would then get on Levy's back to say, why were you spending this amount of money when we didn't have it? It's easy to, to spend somebody else's money. And I, I feel deeply uncomfortable. Like if, if like we were talking about Schneiderlin and, and Jay Rodriguez, if we can afford 
a player one step down. If we can only afford the six million or whatever we paid for Stambouli and not the twenty million we paid for that would have cost Schneiderlin, in, then that's understandable. You can only live within your means. I I always that's that's a sticking point with me. Just because it's a large business does not mean that they have a bottomless pit of money. I mean it's like people look at it like it's Tottenham go into the supermarket every time and instead of buying Jaffa cakes, they get the own brand best buy value version of them. But if that's all they can afford, do you look down on somebody in the supermarket for only buying, you know, the things they can afford? I, I know I know what you're it's saying, but at the same time, you know, just to put a little bit more perspective, I do know exactly what you're saying, mate, but we are also talking about our owner being Joe Lewis, one of the richest men in the world. Like, you know, maybe, you know, it, the, 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 disparity between him and the very very richest is huge but at the same time this is a, a multiple multiple billionaire um so it's but he doesn't he doesn't tottenham are a separate entity they're a business within his catalogue of businesses they're an investment to him that it's not something that he pumps money in. it's not joe lewis isn't sat on our board and is a, a an abramovich figure to us his company owners so if it's it's not his money that he's piling in directly. If he wanted to give us a cash injection, it would have happened by now. But this is a, an investment from him. It's been bought by his investment company, and it's you know it's been run by his business partner. It's not a folly as it is for other people. He's not going to put in more money because that would mean that when he comes to sell the club, he'd get less money back. That's not what they're expecting to do. I think there's. I think you have to kind of come to terms with that to a there's a certain amount of expecting too much from people there is the possibility that there could of course there is but it's never going to happen the fact that we 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 bought all those players a, a summer or two ago for all of that money is purely because we had the money to spend in you know liquid assets from a sale yeah. so it's it's sort of I feel there's a lot of coming to terms for people to do with kind of being happy with their lot to there a is. certain extent. You've got to... There is, but then at the same time, you know, there is still the argument that year on year out, loyalty points get cut, year on year out, prices go up, and in a disproportionate rate to the rest of the Premier League, Tottenham is still a I ridiculously think... expensive prospect to go and watch, you know? Um, yeah, I think I think politically we... The, the politics that the club play with their fan base is, is really behind. I think th- that sort of thing is, is where the concern is more. They need a, a real kick up the arse in the PR department. They certainly need a better understanding of what to do socially in, in terms of social media. They need <laughs> a much better, a, a much better face to the club and the way in which they present themselves. I mean, what was the way Tom was telling us about the, you know, the cloak and dagger way that they deal with the press isn't, isn't really becoming of a company that big and a company mm. that essentially are a media magnet. It's just very old-fashioned, isn't it? It's, it's... Yeah, the, the way in which they deal with it is... That's the, that's the thing I find concerning, the, the finance side of it, because I'm not an economics graduate, I'm, I don't know about that too much, but the sort of way that I rationalise that sort of thing, I don't really have too many points of, you know... Uh, too much uncomfort or too much you know unhappiness with the way in which they deal with the club financially i'm extremely happy that we are one of few clubs in the country that are financially quite secure mm. up until we we whether or not we build this stadium or not we are actually quite sound at the moment and 
going into things like financial fair play and things, that stands us in good stead. That means that because we make money, we will be able to spend that money. And other clubs that are losing money habitually season after season will not be able to behave the same. I mean, today, Chelsea's annual uh, profits got released and they've risen dramatically because Abramovich has stopped spending the amount of money he used to for exactly the same reason because of this financial fair play. If he if he had spent so much money again and, and, and his profits had come back lower and he'd made a loss again, he wouldn't have been allowed to spend that much money again next season. So I think we're in the long term, we're actually playing the financial game quite well. I think it's on a on a engagement side of it and then a and a social side of it that, that we need to catch up. And I think if people want to hear that conversation in much more depth, I think that's something that, that Kat specifically from the, the supporters trust spoke about really well on the on the fighting cock this yeah. week when they spoke about the ownership. Um I found her comments incredibly interesting. She's she's been on here and had a similar sort of conversation with you before. And I find the work they do really, really good in that aspect. That's that's what they need to do. There needs to be a more open dialogue between the club and the fans because if you hide and if you aren't open with the people who care about something as much as we do, there's obviously going to be a, a disenchantment there and they're gonna, we're going to feel alienated in the way we do and they're going to point fingers in areas where perhaps we don't know as well as we, we might think we do. And really, if, if Tottenham just took five minutes to explain every decision to us, if they released a statement and they went, you know what, we offered 30 million for Sergio Aguero. They said they wanted 45 back. We just can't afford that. If we could, we would, but we can't. If they, if that, if they said that quite honestly, I think fans would fans would be quite happy with yeah. that. They'd go, oh, there's the, the ambition of going after but the player, but we I, just couldn't I make it happen. I think the problem then, obviously, we can go on to that, is the problem is then other clubs now, we've got £30 million that we can spend. So you can see why some things are kept kept a secret and why other things aren't. But yeah, I th- as, as you touched on now, I think if you uh, really want an in-depth kind of talk into this, there is the, the, the Fighting Cock podcast. It's, it's very good listen this week. Um, they've got Cat on. They've got a lad called Neil on who's got a Twitter account at the moment, which is uh, entitled Any Count. So I don't think you need to guess which side of the fence he's on. Also got Martin Cloak as well. He's a he's a very good Tottenham writer and a member of the board, as, or a trust, I should say. Um, it's a really good listen. But yeah, I think we've uh, we've prattled on for quite a, quite a while tonight, Raji Bane, so we might have to miss out the television talk. Um, but yeah, if you want to listen to any previous episodes of Rule the Roost, please do so on spursstatman.com or through our iTunes um, page, whatever it is. Um, You can also follow us on Twitter at RTRSSM and follow the boss man JP at spursstatman. Um, It is an international break. Who have we got after the international break, mate? Who are we talking to next? Um, not a clue you've put yeah, me on the spot yeah I can't there. remember either shit fans fuck off come on you Spurs <laughs>
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.